I am uh, just a little hobbit that you have to hear for the next couple of weeks. Little being the operative word. Cole, if you'll join me in being the hobbit, that would be marvellous. <laughs> uh, we hope that uh, as Sunday's away, that, um, that what we get to share will be of some benefit to you, that God will impress something on your heart that will uh, start to change you, continue to change you and, uh, and bless you this Christmas. I got the uh, opportunity to uh, preach probably one and a half to two months ago. I got this opportunity. And as I was thinking about it, Pete said, no, we're not doing Mark anymore. We're going to keep that going next year. So it was, um, it was free reign. I could, uh, I could preach on whatever I wanted. I was reading a book at the time called Back to Virtue by Peter Kreeft, which I'm still reading. And I had a conversation with Wes Hitsky. Uh, and the conversation was all about the outlandish fact that Jesus, the great God-man, the saviour of the world, the prince of peace, came as a tiny little embryo. Tiny little embryo in the womb of an unmarried woman. Now, if you're writing a story, it's not exactly the kind of story you'd write. Not for the greatest superhero in the story, right? Usually the greatest superhero comes on with a massive, uh, you know, fanfare. It's, it's big time. Um, but not this one, not this one. And it's this whole idea of the Prince of Peace that I want to uh, spend a little bit of time on this week and next. Um, thinking about that, I don't know if you've sung many Christmas carols uh, or things about the Prince of Peace and ever thought about it. What does it actually mean, the Prince of Peace? What does it actually mean when you uh, sing about it, when you think about it, when you hear uh, things at Christmas talking about the Prince of Peace? I mean... You don't have to go far and wide to see uh, that being displayed all over the place, whether it's Christmas lights or posters or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, the name comes from a passage in the Old Testament, and it's out of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Not only was this particular section of scripture, Isaiah, written hundreds of years before it actually happened, there's something almost scandalous about the peace that this prince brings. It's a crazy peace. And there was people who, uh, who still didn't get it. Pause with me uh, for a moment, though, and think about why, why peace? Why do you need peace? Why would a prince of peace need to come? Uh, have you ever considered a true definition for peace? Is it really tolerance in its culturally defined sense, which means we should be tolerant of everyone and every idea without any question? Without any discussion, you just got to tolerate each other, all right, and somehow get along. It means no one can disagree with one another. Uh, that's just it. That's, the, uh, that's mostly, I think that would be a cultural example of tolerance. Certainly what Australia is championing, championing at the moment. The greatest peace is if everyone just gets along and doesn't ask any questions. Uh, maybe it's the comfortable life. My peace will come once I have dot, dot, dot. What would you put in there? I'll be most at peace when I live in Murphy's Creek and get to look out over a mountain. <laughs> you know, or I'll be most at peace when I get to go camping and uh, not have to worry about life. Um, yes, I hear a few amens out there. <laughs> Is it Miss America's most valued desire over all else? What do you really want? World peace, right? 
As if it's such a beautiful idea, but so far-fetched, right? Because you don't have to watch the news for long to go, that's not happening. That is certainly not happening. There's some people in Jesus' day that thought they had an idea of peace. Then Jesus comes, fulfilling that future-telling prophecy of Isaiah, and they think, yes, he's here. They have it. And here's what Jesus says. It's in Luke, and it's where, you know, I talked a few weeks ago in Mark about how Jesus came in a triumphant procession, and everyone was cheering and singing and and glorifying this great Saviour who was coming to fulfill prophecy. And, uh, and Jesus, in Luke, ends up, before he gets there, uh, he ends up lamenting. He ends up weeping in absolute sadness over this place. Here's what he says. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. What's he saying? They thought they knew what they needed for peace. They needed somebody who was going to come in and conquer the Romans who were oppressing them and that there would be peace between the government and Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, no, that's not the peace I'm bringing. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. If anyone wanted peace, it would be those people right there. If Jesus came right now and said that to us, we'd be going, peace. Jesus, we want peace. We don't want that. It's going to be disastrous. Peace, please. Here Jesus is lamenting over the city of Jerusalem because they've missed it. The very name of their city means peace. Jerusalem has part of its meaning as peace. And inherent with that meaning is peace with God. This is where peace with God was meant to be existing. That's why he went into the temple where people were meant to meet with God, that massive big place, and he overturned tables and got really angry Because people were destroying the very peace that Jesus was coming to bring. The place where people were meant to be connecting with God in peace was a place they just decided to turn into a shopping center, into a mall. It was a relationship with their creator that had to be reconciled, not with their government. Peace, as I looked up in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, carries the fundamental meaning of welfare, prosperity or wholeness, as well as the absence of hostility. So there was welfare, prosperity, wholeness, as well as the absence of hostility. So consider with me the opposite of that. Just pause and think about the opposite of all those things. So one, instead of welfare, you'd have hardship. That's unpeace. That's one example of unpeace. Instead of of prosperity, you'd have failure. Instead of wholeness, you'd have incompleteness. And instead of the absence of hostility, you'd have the presence of hostility. Now, I think that within every single person, there's this uh, longing for peace, a a longing for this sort of understanding of peace, where there would be wholeness, where there wouldn't be the fracture of relationships, where people wouldn't be at war with one another. I think it's a longing in, in every single person. But consider these people. Maybe it's their very nation at war with one another. And they're desperately fleeing for asylum. That's a very present and real situation, isn't it? Wars, uh, uh, sorry, nations fighting against nations, warring against one another. And people, seemingly innocent people, are just desperately fleeing for asylum. They're just longing for a place of peace again. Longing for a place where there's no war, where people aren't opposing each other all the time. 
Maybe it's people in the playground, kids in the playground at school. And the playground at school is a war ground for them. They're always at war with their peers. They just can't get along. And they're watching wars go on with their peers. And still for others, the hostility exists in their very home, the place meant for the greatest peace and welfare. Hostility just continues to grow. The hostility just continues to grind down. And it's like they can't escape. And longing within each of them, I think, is this desperate desire for peace. A peace that pervades and goes far deeper than just the circumstances around them, but that actually digs right down deep in the heart. I'm going to take a look at a few scriptures. And uh, I'd like for just some people, hopefully uh, at least some of you have Bibles on your phones or Bibles in your hands. So could a couple of people look up Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20. A couple of other people look up James chapter 4, verse 4. And then a couple of others look up Romans 5, verse 6. So have I got some takers for Colossians 1? Anybody got that one? Beauty. Have I got James chapter 4? Yes. And have I got Romans chapter 5? Marvellous. All right. Hopefully those people are also bold enough to actually say them out loud. If you don't, pass it to the person next to you and double them in. <clears throat> so we've got Colossians 1, 19 to 20, James chapter 4, verse 4, and Romans 5, verse 6 to 10. Who's got Colossians? Could you read it out? Yep. That's it, 19 and 20. Okay, there's some strong language in that one. The him and the his in there is who? Jesus, right? Because all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. So Jesus was fully God, fully man, and here he was. The other strong language is that through him, people would be reconciled to God. So it has inherent in it the fact that people aren't reconciled to God, right? There's some division. There's something going on to make this division massive. And it needs something big like the blood of a person to actually reconcile it and bring it back together. Next, James chapter 4, verse 4. Who's got that one? Yeah, Will? Great. That's strong language, right? That you're not just a non-friend. It's like, I didn't just untick you on friends. You're now the enemy of God, an enemy, all right? If you make friends with the world, you're actually making yourself an enemy of God, the greatest being in the universe, the most powerful, the strongest, the most incredible, and you're coming up against him as his enemy. Romans chapter 5, keep coming, he's got that one, go for it Adrian. Keep going to verse 10. There's a lot of we in there, right? We were reconciled. We were enemies. 
Now pause and think here. Would you actually count yourself an enemy of God? Or would you have counted yourself an enemy of God? When I think of the word enemy, I think automatically, like you think of the world today and you think someone like ISIS. Or I think of enemy and I think Satan. Or I think of enemy, like what do you guys think? Say the word enemy and what do you think? The baddies, yeah, exactly. It's like the baddies. I remember watching Western movies when I was a little fella, and uh, and you see the enemies coming over. <laughs> Dad used to love watching with us, and uh, and you see the baddies coming out, and man, they came out with force, all right. And you didn't want to be the baddie; you wanted to be the goody that took the baddie down, all right. Um, you you may be thinking, me an enemy, really? Like, am I really counted in that verse where it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son? Am I really one of those ones? Like, is that really me? That's certainly the way I would have thought um, and spent a lot of my years grappling over. Um, it's only been yes, this year that it's sort of been reconciled for me. Um, that that I, I've always thought that there's something in me that's just sort of good enough. Like, that God would look at me and go, yeah, you're a really, you're a pretty good guy. All right, I'm going to take you. All right, that there was something in me, that there's just something that he might like in me um, that, that would want him, that would make him want to choose me. But this isn't what it says here. And there's numerous other scriptures that would suggest this as well. And this, I think, actually helps to understand why the Prince of Peace had to come. Because if he is a Prince of Peace, then there must have been a war. For a prince to come and bring peace, he's bringing peace to people who are at war with one another. And people who, who are, uh, there's a big war going on. In every human heart, there's a measure of enmity to holiness and consequently to the author of it. Men seldom suspect this for one property of sin is to blind the understanding so that men do not know their own state. So you get that. It's like no one really wants to be considered an enemy of God because that's what sin does. Sin wants to blind you into thinking you're actually better than you are and not looking at reality, not looking at what you're really like so you can see how really good the Prince of Peace really is. Does that make sense? So what does it mean to be an enemy of God? Is it okay to see large all-out enemies go toe-to-toe or nations against nations but then ask the question, well, that's them. Like they've got guns and bombs and they actually fight each other and kill each other, right? That's not me. Uh, like we don't sit here and fight each other and kill each other, all right? How, how is it that I'm an enemy of God? Well, here's one way. We're going to read uh, a couple of examples. Um, and, and this is one out of Daniel. So if you've got your Bible there, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And it's about this great king called Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar had an incredible name and uh, he was a very wealthy king. He was a very prosperous king. Um, all the things that we're talking about peace, he was, he was quite integral in bringing um, within his kingdom. Uh, but let's see what happens in his particular point of enmity with God, his particular point where he actually was an enemy of God and realized it. Uh, so Daniel chapter 4 and we're going to start reading at verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. So he's having a dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. 
The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. Now you look at that and you go, oh, that's a pretty nice dream, right? That'd be a sweet climbing tree, <laughs> all right? There's, there's people, there's animals finding shelter. This is a beautiful tree in the midst of a garden somewhere uh, in his vision. But the, the vision keeps going. He procla- I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven and he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the, ble- let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is, uh, this is striking, right? Here's a good tree and then meant to just cut it down. No reason, no rhyme. It's just you're going to go cut it down. Leave the stump. Uh, animals are going to go and have to find a new home. The greenies are going mad because the tree is getting cut down. And, uh, and Daniel comes along. God's men. See, all the other seers and all the other dream tellers couldn't help Nebuchadnezzar because they didn't know God. And so God comes in through Daniel and uh, explains what the dream means. Daniel is pretty nervous, though, because he sees this dream and goes, this is you, Neb. This is you, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I wish it was for your enemies, but it's actually about you. And he gets into it, verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the earth, and whose leaves, and it continues on, verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And it's you who's going to be destroyed and cut down. You go, whoa, what's going on here? This king seems like a good king. He even mentions God's name in one of his addresses just prior to this. But he's going to get cut down. Why? Well, he's walking on his rooftop one night. And here's what happens. Down at verse 29. The end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Can you imagine? I love these stories because they're so descriptive. And you get to sort of imagine and see what's going on. He's walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And verse 30, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Who's the center of his kingdom? He is. Yeah, he is. And that, that's the point of his enemy status with God. God's actually blessed this king. It seems he's blessed this king incredibly. But it seems that this king has lost the point of the blessing and the, 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 bless, the blesser, the giver of the blessing. And he's actually made it about himself. And so in his proud arrogance, he ends up reaping devastation for himself because it continues on. Immediately, verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. 
Can you imagine this, this bloke? He's in the field eating grass and he's got feathers all over his back. Like he's the eyesore of the nation now. He's not the, he's not the blessed king. He's the eyesore of the nation and the outcast. Why? Because God thinks there's more important things than being just about yourself in proud, proud arrogance. Let's read the end, verse 34 and 30, 34 to the end. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed who? See, previous to this, he was blessing himself. Look at the glory of my majesty. Now see how it changes. I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This man had found peace with God. He'd been an enemy, and he reaped the fruit of his enemy status. His proud arrogance ended up in disaster for him. But God wasn't done. He'd now found peace with God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Weird, right? But it seems to be in perspective now, because he finishes this way. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. It didn't stop at praising and extolling his greatness. He now honored, praised and extolled the great king, God himself. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Peace with God. Enmity, proud, arrogant, grabbing for my kingdom, my stuff, what I can achieve for myself and my greatness. Peace with God. God, you're the greatest. Nothing I have comes except through you. The praise goes to a whole different place. Here's the second one. Here's a, a really sneaky enemy, I think, in being enemies with God. It's this self-made morality based on your goodness. This sounds like a really nice idea. And makes you, but, but as you think about it, who's this story about as well? When you are a really good person, right, and you really do good deeds for people and you're always giving money to charity and you're just a generally good person, uh, it's nice, right? And part of how our society functions is by good people, right? People doing good things. But in God's economy, in the kingdom of eternity, it's going to mean nothing. You're no less an enemy by being a person who's good based on your own morality. You're no less an enemy of God than the worst sinner you could possibly think of. Why? Because it all terminates with the human. It doesn't terminate with God, the most glorious one. The most incredible one, the greatest saviour. No good person wrapped up in their own goodness counts themselves an enemy of God because they're too wrapped up in their goodness. The key is that it has no relation to God, which has to do with your eternity. In his book, uh, Peter Kreeft addresses this whole idea of being peacemakers, which I'm going to look at a little bit next week. Um, but this is one thing he talks about in relation to anger and what it does to peace, what it does to peace. This sounds familiar and pretty safe, but it has implications that would upset many people. First, since God is really angry at sin, 
Our modern morality of likeness, togetherness and tolerance is far from God's morality. God is no more an all-powerful chum than he is an all-powerful fiend. Second, God really loves sinners. Our tendency is to let anger settle into a simmering hate is even farther from God's mind. If Adolf Hitler had come to Jesus truly repentant, Jesus would have forgiven him. Even if that act would have scandalized millions of Jewish mothers whose sons had died in concentration camps. Jesus forgave Mary Magdalene. Now Mary Magdalene, was uh, the theologians suggest that she was the one who was dragged out in front of everybody as the adulteress. And she was being shown for who she really was. And in her shame, she's there at the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees are all saying, stone her, she's, a, she's an adulteress. And Jesus, in his wisdom and in his great mercy, draws a line and said, all right, any person who hasn't sinned, these are really good people, right? Sort of displays the point. Any person who hasn't sinned, you, you throw the first stone. And every person walked away. Because they started to understand what truly brings peace with God. Keeps going. Do you think there were no wives whose marriages had been destroyed by this woman and felt resentment at his forgiveness? If they did, it is because they failed to do that one thing that is so easy to say and so hard to do. Hate the sin and love the sinner. This is what makes peace with God so seemingly scandalous. The justifiably angry and wrathful God who could rightly carry out his wrath in the world and in our life, just as he did with Nebuchadnezzar, just as he did so many times over in the Old Testament, he actually chose to make a way for all people to be reconciled to him. This is the incredible scandal of the peace of God. Seemingly scandal. It's not really a scandal, right? It's actually true. It's actually as good as what it really is. Now, when you think about the wrath of God, I'm not sure you've ever tried to consider it, tried to fathom it. I know a lot of people stumble over it um, within reading the Bible. Um, and as they, as they see all the stuff that happened, particularly in the Old Testament, they go, really? How? I don't get it. How is this God, who is love, so wrapped up in all this war and, and uh, stuff going on in the Old Testament? Let me read a little bit more of uh, what Creech says. This does not mean that the wrath of God is a mere approximation of pa- or a pale copy of human anger. It means that human anger is a mere approximation or pale copy of divine wrath. It does not mean that the wrath of God is a primitive myth or a man-made fiction like the boogeyman or Santa Claus, which is what most people want to do. They just sort of want to go, oh, let's just leave that alone. We can't really explain it, can't understand it, so let's just not talk about it. Yet it exists. It's, it's really true. And it's really scary. Just as the strong right arm of God refers to real power in God, though not literally and physically to the power of a biological arm, so the wrath of God refers to something real, though not the intermittent, environmentally stimulated and often irrational thing we call anger in ourselves. For it is changeless. It flows from God's inner nature, not any external conditioning. So it's not like things happen and, go, and God goes, oh, that made me angry. Bam, I'm going to take some people out. That's not how God works. He's not as flippant as that. It's not the God that exists. It's changeless. It flows from God's inner nature, not any external conditioning. And it is neither irrational nor a passion. It is his justice and his perfect holiness experienced as wrath by its enemies, but as goodness by his friends. Did you hear that? 
Now, if you actually did understand the wrath of God, the wrath of God was for his enemies, not for his friends. His friends saw the wrath of God and went, oh, I'm so glad God's in control. I'm so glad God's looking after his friends. His enemies were freaking out, and so they should have been. This last point may be clarified, he continues, by recalling a shoeing God gave to the Lady Julian of Norwich. She asked God if she could please see his wrath. How's that for a question? God, just show me your wrath. I just want to see your wrath. I want to see the uh, burnt anger of your wrath. Because she was so disturbed at reading about it in Scripture, which she knew to be God's word and truth. Since she knew both that, both from that same Scripture and from her own experience that God was pure love. So God showed her his wrath. And she said of this shoeing, I saw no wrath but on man's part. Now that's interesting. What does it mean, he says? I think it means something like this. God is all goodness, all love. He is not love plus justice or goodness plus wrath. God's goodness and love manifest justice, holiness, moral goodness. God's, God loves what is good and not what is evil. Even when we hate what is good, sorry, when we hate what is good and love what is evil, when we hate what God loves and what God is and love what God hates, then God himself seems to be to us our enemy and to be angry with us. Now, I'm going to say that all again because it could have been a little confusing. But think about what's good and what's evil, what God loves and what God hates. Okay? So you've got two sides of the picture here. Let me read it again. God's goodness and love manifest justice, holiness, and moral goodness. That's, what he, that's how his love is actually expressed. God loves what is good and not what is evil. When we hate what is good... Now pause and think for a minute. There is things that you hate that are actually really good like the sanctification of your own holiness. That's not a nice experience. It's probably something that you'd rather hate than love. But it's a really, really good thing. More precious than gold, God says. When we hate what is good and love what is evil, when we hate what God loves and what God is and love what God hates, then God himself seems to be to us our enemy and to be angry with us. So is that starting to make sense? So to be an enemy of God isn't necessarily... There are people who are violently opposed to God, all right? And they're the very people we need to come and share the gospel with. So don't hear me separating us out, all right? But to be an enemy of God is not necessarily to come with guns blazing going, I hate you, God. To be an enemy of God is to love what he hates. Now consider this in, a, in the thing that we often talk about here at the projects, and that's idolatry. When you love an idol, and when that idol gets elevated to the place of God, maybe it's food or money or success, whatever it is, when that idol gets elevated to the part of God, it's almost like you become an enemy of God, right? Because you're loving what he hates. He hates idols, and he hates the sin that it produces in you. He hates it terribly. But isn't that sometimes the stuff that we sort of want to help? We sort of want to keep and we don't really want to let go. And when God says to let it go, when God rips it out of our hands, out of our clutch, it's almost like we think, oh, that's something good. I want to keep that. All right? And you miss that the very better thing is letting it go. Is hating it because God hates it. 
The longer a person resists God and his will, the more entwined to their identity as an enemy that they become. It's like a crawling vine that begins to grow and entangle a garden. The more you tend that thing, the more you tend that vine, or the more you leave it, the more it takes over. Sooner or later, it takes over you. Just the same way as it takes over the whole garden, right? You tend that vine and it will go really well, but sooner or later, it's going to go nuts, okay? And it's going to take out the whole garden. You leave that vine alone, the very vine that you need to cut off, and it's going to take over as well. Can you see, sometimes you just want to disregard the things that you don't want to let go, like the the sin that you don't want to stop, the sin that you don't want to turn away from, because it's actually pretty good. There's something really nice about uh, committing that wrong, okay? It's the nature of sin. It's, it's sort of attractive. It's the way Satan wants to do it. Uh, if you just want to sort of shut it away and leave it alone, sooner or later it's going to grow and entangle you the same way as that vine does. <clears throat> the hope for us in all of this is that God is not irreconcilable. That as an enemy of God, he sends his Prince of Peace because he wants to reconcile. See, we made God our enemy because of the actions that we do, because of the very attitudes of our heart. We made God our enemy. God didn't make us his enemy. But yet he reaches out to his enemy and says, I want to reconcile. You can have peace with me again because that's going to be a really incredible place. Psalm 73 expresses this, I think, really well. This sort of anguish that goes on inside a person as they desire what is not good, and as they love what's not good, love what's evil, and hate what's good. And then it sort of comes around at the end to actually see what's true and what's real. So let's have a read. Psalm chapter 73 says this. You with me? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now if you pause there, pure in heart, God's good to people, yeah, that's a place of peace. Right, But then there's this anguish going on. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through their fatness. <laughs> you poor, like, this is a great description. <laughs> Their eyes are sort of bulging out because of how fat they've gotten on all the good life, you know. And the good life looks so good to this guy, whoever was writing this. Keeps going. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. You hear these people? Can you imagine them right now? Their tongue struts through the earth. We own this place. We're going to take over. Knives in hand, YouTube clip, all over Facebook, all over the news. Sort of makes you scared, doesn't it? It can, it can really start to get you freaking out. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase their riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. 
For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be such a wearisome task. Do you get his grind? It's like, oh, that looks so good. I want that to be my success. And everything in you starts to sort of work out ways. How can I get that? How can I get what they've got? It looks so sweet right now. Or you freak out and you fear and you just run and hide. You're going, oh, those people are crazy. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And you start to forget and and lose perspective of what's actually real, of what's actually going on uh, in relation to this God of the universe. Here's the point at which it turns. starts to turn in, uh, in his heart and in his mind. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was just like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you see the difference going on here? Enmity with God, enemy with God, it's self-made. I'm, I'm my own person, I'm my own man, I'll do it myself, I'll do it my way, and maybe God will get a look in. Whereas reorienting that says, God, you're with me. I only have good because of you. And as I look at those people, I'm not going to be envious of what they have. I'm going to walk with you, holding my right hand. There's something incredibly powerful about someone great holding on to you as you walk into a messy situation. And suddenly, all the taunts that get flashed in our faces that the media pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes when crazy stuff happens in the world, you start to lose perspective and go, they really are taking over. These people really are going to wreak havoc. But what hope is there? There's peace with God, which lasts through death. There's peace with God, which actually helps to conquer the very hostility that they're actually bringing. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Peace with God is the ultimate of your life. But I would say this. It's not not until you actually recognize you were an enemy of God, or you are an enemy of God, that you actually realize how good his peace is. To realize the end of your life as you walk it without God is going to be disaster. You go, oh, peace with God right now and into eternity is going to be the best thing. It's going to be the best thing. Kreeft continues to, uh, to talk about, and this is where it brings about some application. This little baby, the Prince of Peace, came to restore peace with God, which is every person's greatest need. Every person's greatest need. Kreeft says this, In fact, it is only our sin which he is angry with. But when we identify with that sin, rather than dissociating ourselves from it by repentance, 
then it seems to us that it, it is ourselves, not just our sin, that God is angry at. However, when we dissolve by the solvent of repentance, the glue that glues us to our sins, then we know that God in hating our sin is like a surgeon who hates the cancer only because he loves the patient. So as God reaches in and sends the Prince of Peace for you to have peace with him, the almighty being, the almighty good that you desperately long for, as he comes in and starts to tear apart the sin that separates you from him, it's like a good doctor or a good surgeon who's tearing out the cancer because he loves the patient so much. I don't know if you saw the, uh, the uh, Spider-Man 3. And it was where Venom, the alien whatever, came in and started to wrap up uh, Spider-Man. Has anybody seen this? I'm not the greatest at explaining these. Yeah, he's seen it. Tell me if I'm wrong here. But he just gets absolutely uh, covered in this venom and it just takes over him and it, and it causes him to do evil. It literally, it just takes over him and his, his mind, his will, his emotions, they just turn to evil. Um, and so this good Spider-Man ends up being uh, a terrible enemy and causing havoc all over the place. And what brings this, what dissolves the venom, what, what tears the venom apart is uh, noise, incredible noise of a particular decibel, obviously. And so uh, what ends up happening, he gets in this building, there's a bunch of pipes hanging all over the place and the pipes get rung. So someone just walks around with a, with a uh, stick and starts hitting these pipes and the sound of those pipes all reverberating start to tear off this venom. And suddenly you see he's free again. He's actually free. And that's what this repentance is like. When you consider repentance and living a life of repentance, of turning to sin, but not just turning to sin and saying, I'm still an enemy with God, but turning to God, saying, God, peace with you is far better than anything I can hold on to over here. And the, the, the clinging to God, the clinging to God instead of clinging to sin and the idols and the things that we want to hold on to so dearly over here, uh, you realize is painful. All right, you could see him being absolutely torn apart by this venom as it got stripped off him. And that's what it's like, right? The, the sin that we the sort of entangles us and grows around us like the vine needs to get in, disentangled, needs to get torn off. And that's what repentance does. It's like the solvent to the glue that, that, that sin sticks to us. So as you repent, as you walk daily in repentance, you realize that your only hope is the mercy of God. And this is where Paul talks about it. Paul tells his story and he comes to a point where he can confidently say he's the worst of sinners. But he doesn't stay there because the point of that scripture is not that he's the worst of sinners. Let's have a read. 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Enemy, right? Enemy of God, enemy of God's people. He wanted to take them out. He thought they were the disease that needed to be wiped out. God comes and meets him and here's what happens. And the grace of our Lord, the kindness of our God, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He can confidently admit, I am the worst enemy of God there ever was. 
Was he the worst? Probably not. There was far worse, right? If you judge it based on what they do. But then his confidence continued. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see the twist in his story, right? Blasphemer, opponent. It was all about him and him trying to maintain this, uh, I guess, this ethical sort of standard, this moral standard of, of goodness, this moral standard of following the law. And he realized that he was the worst of them all. He was the one who was meant to be imprisoned. He was the one who was meant to be killed for his, for his sin. And he acknowledges that. And I'm inviting you this morning. Uh, that particular scripture in Romans 5 that says, For at one time, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. You were that enemy. And I was that enemy. And it's actually really liberating to acknowledge the reality of that. That's the truth about you. The only thing that comes between you and God is his mercy. It's the only thing. There is no goodness in you that you could conjure up or that you could act out that's ever going to make you right or at peace with God, which is what you're really longing for. Are you at peace with God this morning? Because I think the enemy status tends to linger, right? Tends to rear its ugly head. Because even though when you come to faith in God, you're not his enemy anymore. You're his friend, you're his son, you're his daughter. The enemy status starts to rear its ugly head again all over the place. And you've got to keep knocking it on the head. <clears throat> Which is why the Lord's Prayer is such an incredible prayer. It's why Jesus said, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now, it's good to be particular about sin, right? and to deal with particular sin, but there's an element with which it keeps reminding you day by day, God, forgive me of my sins because there are many that I don't even know about and I still need peace with you every day. The only way it comes is through the precious blood of Jesus.